Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. <clears throat> we are continuing to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. We are on chapter six, I believe, uh, and it is entitled The Failures of Policing Sex Work. <clears throat> Police Corruption. Police corruption plays a major role in the abuse and marginalization of sex workers and undermines public confidence in the police. Vice crimes such as gambling, prostitution, and substance abuse lend themselves to police corruption for a number of reasons. Police can enact harsh penalties, and those engaged in illegal activity usually have the resources to buy them off. Furthermore, enforcement is largely discretionary, so there is tremendous temptation for police to look the other way in return for bribes or actively pursue bribes as a form of, quote, rent-seeking, rent-seeking, End quote, in which they use their position to maximize extorted earnings. In many parts of the world, police corruption in relation to prostitution is endemic, with most sex workers conducting financial and even sexual relationships with police. It is considered an unavoidable cost of doing business for workers and part of the expected base salary for police, along with bribes to avoid traffic tickets and free meals and goods from local businesses. While these practices were the norm in American policing through the 1960s, their practice is no longer systematic. Excuse me, their practice is no longer systemic. No, systematic. Sorry about that. My fault. Starting this one off a little rough. Increases in pay, greater public oversight, and corruption scandals such as the Knapp Commission helped to mostly end such practices at the systemic level. However, Lower-level corruption remains widespread. Police are regularly arrested or fired for providing protection for brothels or making financial or sexual demands on individual sex workers, and it is not uncommon for sex workers to feel financial, financial and sexual demands from officers as a regular part of their work life. <clears throat> in just the last few years, American police have been implicated in running and providing protection for brothels, demanding sex from prostitutes to avoid arrest, hiring underage prostitutes, acting as pimps, stealing from and assaulting sex workers, and demanding bribes from prostitutes and their clients. There is no way to know the full extent of these practices, but the problem is widespread and ongoing. A 2005 survey of sex workers found that 14% had had sexual experiences with police and 16% had experienced police violence while only 16% reported having a good experience going to the police for help. Another study found that a third of the violence young sex workers experienced came at the hands of police. Oops, sorry about that. And then that is, brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter here. And what stands out to me immediately from what we just read is the results of the survey which pointed to the fact that the same amount of sex workers that had reported a good experience with the police when going to them for help is the same amount of is the same percentage of sex workers who had experienced uh, sexual exploitation at the hands of the police and I think, again, in here, he does a good job of sort of tracing the origins of 
vice work back to earlier times in American history and bringing it up to date with where we are now and sort of connecting how some of the shortcomings that exist in this particular type of policing, where they began at. And and I think that what one of the things that comes across a lot when he goes back in the past and tells about corruption in the past or tells about exploitation on, uh, by the police in the past is the fact that there are generations of people who have been traumatized by this institution, that there are generations of people who have uh, lost any type of belief or any type of confidence in this institution and that those traumas are passed on to people. And so when we begin to talk about the legitimacy of policing and the legitimacy of the police and the legitimacy of the criminal justice system, we can't just talk about how things are right now. Uh, we can't just talk about We can't, we cannot afford to not bring up the past, the things that happened uh, in the history of policing when having a conversation about why this institution is not one that can continue if we want to receive true justice and if we want equitable, equitable justice. And so I think that, again, what just stands out there is him connecting issues of the present with issues of the past and also pointing out the corruption of the police. I think this is the first chapter that we've read where the corruption of police was mentioned as one of the issues within the specific type of the specific form of policing we're reading about. The most of these other most of these other chapters involved things being criminalized which the police couldn't really profit off of immediately in the form of being corrupt. And this is the first thing that offers a, a financial reward for corruption. Reforms. Most reform initiatives that attempt to reduce the negative impact of policing on sex workers focus on shifting the burden of enforcement onto buyers and third-party third party purveyors. Others divert sex workers into court-mandated or social services-driven treatment and rehabilitation regimes in an attempt to keep them out of jail and offer them pathways to economic self-sufficiency. These efforts include specialized courts, quote, John schools, end quote, new laws targeting clients, and other attempts to either deter clients or reform sex workers and their clients. This can be seen most clearly in new legal regimes that decriminalize selling sexual services, but criminalize buying or organized provision. The pioneer of this approach is Sweden, which in 1999 voted to decriminalize sex work, but increase penalties for the trafficking and coercion of sex workers and the purchase of sexual services. Sorry about that. This change was motivated by mostly liberal female legislators taking an abolitionist approach to prostitution on feminist grounds. They argued that all sex work is degrading to women, even though not all sex workers are women, and that all women involved in sex work have been coerced in some way, even if just out of economic desperation. Framing sex workers as victims made criminalizing them unjust. So instead, they placed the burden on those who coerce women into the trade 
and those who demand their services. This, quote, Nordic model, end quote, also provides sex workers with access to social services, government benefits, and pensions. Since the law was enacted, there has been evidence of a decline in the overall number of prostitutes and an increase in the price of services. Interestingly, no one has actually been incarcerated for soliciting sex. The rise in prices suggests a drop in the supply of sex workers rather than a decrease in demand. The rhetoric of victimhood has also served to further stigmatize and socially isolate sex workers. Many sex workers report that they are voluntary participants and that criminalizing clients further isolates them. Because their clients are at risk of arrest, they must still work covertly. They still report feeling hunted by the police and driven into the margins of society. In addition, some sex workers have lost custody of their children. Others have been evicted by landlords concerned about being prosecuted for facilitating sex work. This means that women must often work alone as opposed to having an organized setting in which security and working conditions could be more easily controlled and improved. In the Netherlands and Nevada, where organized prostitution is permitted, workers are better able to organize to improve safety and working conditions. In the United States, prostitution remains illegal except in rural Nevada, but there have been less punitive approaches. In 1995, the city of San Francisco developed the first offender prostitution program in which clients could pay court costs and attend a, quote, John school, end quote, to avoid prosecution. This is intended to educate clients about the harms that their practices produce for themselves, their families, communities, and sex workers through graphic lectures about the effects of sexually transmitted diseases and the coercion and exploitation experienced by some sex workers. The hope is that once they know the true costs, clients will choose not to participate in this illicit economy. In practice, these, quote, schools, end quote, have a very punitive quality. Defendants are forced to attend or face criminal charges. The stern lectures have a moralizing bent. They also assume that men are unaware of the potential harms produced by their behavior. In fact, many men are well aware of the negative consequences of their actions, though they often suppress that awareness to suit their desires. Like the Nordic model, this approach does little to improve the life options or working conditions of sex workers or address the underlying motivation for buying sexual services, which requires a much deeper conversation about the role of sex in society. Several court-based diversion programs focus on pressuring and enticing sex workers to leave the trade. Their ability to participate in the court process is usually at the discretion of the local district attorney, who can choose to prosecute instead. The court, makes, the court makes a needs assessment and orders participation in one or more therapeutic or rehabilitative programs, such as drug treatment or job training. In theory, these programs should offer a full range of services tailored to the specific needs of individual sex workers with the goal of providing them true pathways out of sex work, if this is what they want. Since sex workers who end up in the court system have complex needs and often traumatic histories, any re rehabilitative effort should be long-term and anticipate setbacks and temporary program failures. Little of this is done in practice. 
Most programs have a very limited range of services, including shelter referrals, not permanent housing, job training, not jobs, and outpatient mental health and drug treatment. They usually take an abolitionist approach that views women as victims to be rescued. As a result, sex workers are rarely involved in the development of these programs. Christian rescue groups often receive contracts to provide many of the services and in some cases have been instrumental in establishing the courts and work with law enforcement to plan and execute raids. While some of the services can be very helpful, forced participation in religious counseling blurs the line between church and state and does little to improve the lives of sex workers. Fortunately, in some cases, groups with a history of sex worker membership or involvement such as New York's Sex Worker Project, are involved in providing some small portion of the court-mandated services. Here, and I think we'll pause here and have a slight reflection. Okay, so let's reflect upon some of the things that we just read. Again, just as in previous chapters, a couple of different types of reform policies were laid out about policing sex work taken from different areas in the world. And I think what was important and what is important is Alex Vitali talks about the pros that some of these programs present and also the cons that they present. He does the same thing in, in multiple other chapters before this. And I think what we have seen being a common theme is that the the access to all of these reforms typically go through the justice system or go through some type of governmental program, which puts people in a position where they are being coerced in some type of a, in some type of a way to participate in these programs, which makes it less likely naturally for them to be committed and for them to not recidivate, recidivize. I'm not sure if I'm using that again. And one of the things that is unique about this aspect of reform is that in other in other in previous forms of policing we have seen how human beings have been dehumanized how some of the reforms are dehumanizing and how some of the reforms see the people as just numbers in a system what we see in this in the, some of these reforms is that there is a inherent belief of victimization that is being put on some of the people who are involved in sex work. And that's one of the things that Alex Vitali is saying does not work. The, to treat every person who becomes involved in this like a victim or somebody to be, uh, to be helped or to somebody to be changed. And I think that when he talked about it as well, when he spoke about a lot of these programs have a limited range of services, which includes shelter referrals, which, but not permanent housing, include job training, but not jobs, and outp outpatient mental and health drug treatment. And, and so I think that just the, the main thing that comes away differently from this than other chapters is that there is a, a belief that th this is something that has been in the society for centuries that if we have a problem with sex work in our society, what we need to do is address the role that sex plays in our society. But until then, since we understand that this is a supply, 
that is going to be a supply and demand trade that is going to always be in occurrence, what we should do is try to make it as safe for the people that are involved in it. What we should do is try to make it as uh, as humanizing for the people that's involved in it and have empathy and understanding for the people that are involved in it. And then at that point, you can start to deal with the, like like he pointed out, the role that sex plays in our society, which is for a lot of people, a more difficult conversation to have. And even some of these things that we're posing is a more difficult concept to have or a more difficult concept to grasp for some people than just criminalizing the, the issue as a whole and just trying to stigmatize the issue as a, uh, or sex work as a whole instead of taking the time to understand why these things persist and exist in our society. Let's see where we're at. And then also how you spoke about sex workers rarely being involved in the development of these programs and the, the religious aspect that these programs pose and how both of those things, both of those things are naturally hypocritical to doing something that is supposed to be uh, for the betterment of people who are involved in sex work. If you're not getting the input from people who have experienced these things, if you're not getting an understanding from people who have been there firsthand for these things, then you're creating something that that is naturally has a bias and a prejudice. And then also when you start speaking about connecting religious beliefs with something that should be about, uh, uh, with, something, with something that has, it's a governmental service, you blur the lines as he spoke about of of state and church, but that's something that we see often in laws that are created and how people are persecuted or prosecuted in this country. A lot of that completely hinges on the fact that religion and state are so deeply connected. In 2013, New York created the first human trafficking intervention courts designed to treat sex workers as victims rather than criminals. Molly Crabapple, Molly Crabapple profiled the utter futility and abuse of this system for Vice in 2015, showing that police practices remain essentially unchanged, with the vast bulk of enforcement targeting women in the street trade and often dragging in other poor women of color who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The courts themselves offer only minimal services. In many cases, the penalties from these courts were actually higher than for a regular court as women were forced to go through days of counseling and community service rather than just paying a small fine and getting on with their lives. The issue of trafficking is almost totally absent. The workers are never asked if they were trafficked, and the entire focus is on controlling their lives through moral suasion and forced counseling. Since these programs are only available after an arrest, the police still have tremendous discretion in determining who is a sex worker and whether they should be put into the criminal justice system. This leaves open the possibility of strong bias toward arresting the... Yep, yep, yep. We, yeah, we take shifts, yeah, but 500 days straight. All right, man, y'all stay safe. Uh, my fault, y'all, we outside, my fault. The courts themselves offer only minimal services. In many cases, the penalties... Oh, I read through that. This leaves open the possibility of strong bias toward arresting those in the street trade and sex workers of color. 
In Brooklyn, which has a human trafficking intervention court, 94% of those arrested for street prostitution are African American. In addition, these courts maintain all the temptations of corruption in which police officers can extort sex or money from sex workers in exchange for avoiding arrest and placement in the court. Recidivism rates for participants in these programs are slightly better than for those jailed and fined. However, most participants do go back to sex work, even those involved in abusive relationships with pimps. More importantly, these courts seem to have little impact on the total population of sex workers. Since demand is maintained and economic and social vulnerabilities remain unaddressed, there is a never-ending supply of new workers. In some cases, they help those who are aging out of prostitution or are ready to leave abusive situations, but they seem much less effective in diverting those with high earning potential. Sex workers who are not being coerced often see the programs as demeaning, misguided, and largely irrelevant. With the rise in awareness about human trafficking, has come an explosion in efforts to, quote, rescue, end quote, women and girls in sex work by governments and NGOs. These, quote, abolitionists, end quote, operate on the assumption that all sex workers are there involuntarily. This approach is driven by religious conservatives embracing a moral framework of sexual indiscretion followed by moral redemption and by conservative feminists who look to the state to advance the interest of women through punitive means, quote, carceral feminism, end quote, as coined by Elizabeth Bernstein, or market-based rehabilitation programs while overlooking larger systems of economic and cultural domination. Proponents define sex workers as women who are victims in need of saving and in some cases support full criminalization of female sex workers. One second. This framework may be best known in the United States in relation to conservative religions' efforts to, quote, save, end quote, prostitutes through on-the-job interventions, often captured on video. Films like The Abolitionists, portray moral crusaders working with local police to identify victims and perpetrators. Many, like Operation Underground Railroad, that's a nuts name, many, like Operation Underground Railroad, focus on rescuing child sex workers and victims of coercion and international forced trafficking. They pose as clients and then try to talk sex workers into leaving the trade by joining their programs, which typically offer emergency housing and some social support services, along with a heavy dose of religious mentoring. Internationally, these groups often work with local authorities to do large brothel raids in which foreign workers are deported to their home countries and local workers are forced into social services and training programs. Sometimes these, sometimes these quote, rescued, end quote, women are willing participants in sex work and fight to escape. Others are forced into sweatshop-like conditions, primarily in extremely low-paid garment work. In Thailand, women are held for a year in rehabilitation camps where they are required to learn sewing and other trades in hopes that they will accept low-wage work instead of much higher-paying sex work. The Sex Workers' Rights Group's empowered Ching Mai has documented numerous incidents in which, quote, rescued, end quote, sex workers were abused by police, held in detention, and deported. 
Needless to say, many of those, quote, saved, end quote, returned to sex work. Under the George W. Bush administration, these groups found a welcome reception. In 2002, Congress passed the Global AIDS Act, which barred the use of federal funds to promote, support, or advocate the legalization of prostitution. Governments that wanted funds for AIDS prevention were barred from even exploring the possible benefits of legalized prostitution regimes and reducing HIV transmission rates. Nonprofits were required to take a public stance against prostitution and trafficking in any form, which generally included non-coercive migration of sex workers. This made it very difficult for groups to build trusting relationships with sex workers or openly help them organize for mutual aid and political power. In addition, it has often played into local anti-immigrant sentiments in which visible sex work is blamed on an influx of immigrant sex workers. As a result, enforcement often targets migrant workers without regard for their reasons for doing such work, the means of their arrival, the conditions of their work, or the dangers of illegally crossing borders. Domestically, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2003 conflated all prostitution with forced trafficking, despite the objections of sex workers' organizations. The act was intended to punish traffickers rather than sex workers themselves. The FBI and local law enforcement were pressured to set up anti-trafficking initiatives using new federal money. Unfortunately, enforcement modalities appear largely unchanged. FBI raids typically result in arrest of a small number of traffickers and large numbers of sex workers. The act also created special visas for trafficking victims willing to aid law enforcement in prosecuting their traffickers. The vast majority of these go unused. The law also pushed local and state governments to create anti-trafficking laws that conflate prostitution with trafficking in important but inaccurate ways. Alaska's 2012 law equates trafficking with advertising or working collectively. As a result, Individuals who have advertised on Craigslist have been arrested, as have massage parlor and brothel owners. Even in the absence of any evidence of coercion, much less forced international migration. These laws intensify the criminalization of sex workers and make sex work less secure. In the end, those arrested are generally subjected to the same pointless revolving door justice. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And it was two things that were standing out to me as we continue to read through this. One was how each one of these issues that we have read about, not, not issues, but each one of these forms of policing that we have read about and have been created to try to address an issue or what people believe to be an issue. And the type of issue that it is should be a human issue, not a political issue. Each one of these things that we've read about uh, is about humanity. The school to prison pipeline is about the humanity of these children and teenagers that go to these schools. The chapter about folks with PMI was about the humanity of people who deal with mental health issues and have mental health crises. And uh, the homelessness the a form of policing home or homelessness
being criminalized and police being instituted to deal with homelessness is a human issue, a lack of, of, a lack of affordable and equitable housing. That's about humanity. When we get to here to the policing sex work, we see again that this is about humanity. Under a, a, this is a human issue. This is about understanding why each individual person is in the situation to be involved in sex work. It's not about trying to change a person. It's not about, you know, that's not at the core of helping somebody. Helping somebody shouldn't be about you trying to turn them into the person you believe they should be or change them into the person you believe they should be. Uh, helping, and it's been laid out here, helping these sex workers would be helping them to organize, would be helping them to make sure that they can uh, have a, a safer work environment, that they can have a, a, work environment that's, a work environment that's more conducive to their mental and uh, physical health. And I think that that is one of the things that we have to get to as a people is uh, having viewing these things through a human lens and not viewing these things through a political lens. And so when you hear about laws being passed in different places in which terms are being conflated and uh, communities are being criminalized and, and stigmatized, when you hear about uh, the, in Brooklyn the Human Trafficking Intervention Court having a 94% arrest rate of black people, when you hear about the fact that some of these programs that are supposed to be set up to help people can only be accessed through uh, punitive measures that can only be accessed through the criminal justice system. You see that this is a, a human issue that they have turned into a political issue. When you see that nonprofits aren't, aren't being able to get government grants or government money, that organizations aren't able to get uh, money to, to fight HIV and AIDS without having uh, a staunch stance on the criminalization of sex work, that is when you are dealing with political issues and you are no longer dealing with human issues. You're, not, you're, no, you're no longer viewing this issue through the lens of humanity. You're viewing this issue through the lens of politics. And we have to get to a, a, a place of the people who are understanding and are empathetic, who do want these things to be changed for the better. We have to begin to understand that since the people who want these, these wrongs to continue... All right, sorry about that. I don't, I don't even remember where I was, where I was at. My my phone fell, the book fell, but uh, yeah, the the politi the politicizing of human issues, and I think that we have to, as people who are of goodwill, we have to understand that since people who are are of negative will or are of bad will have malicious intentions, are politicizing human issues and seeing these human issues through the the lens of politics, we have to begin to do the same thing. We have to be, begin to be able to communicate, to articulate these things through, through the lens of politics as well, to, have, to be able to communicate about these things through the lens of politics as well. And so we, it's not just simply enough for us to say that these things need to be changed. We must begin to articulate why these things need to be changed and how we can go about changing these things. We must begin to be informed about how people in other places have went about changing these things and how we can how we can try to learn from the ways those things have played out in other areas and in other places. Which brings me to my next point.
And that is one of the other commonalities through each of these chapters is Alex Vitali has not just spoke about these things from a national perspective, but he's talked about these things from a global perspective. He's pointed out how these issues of, that are involved in the institution of policing exist in countries all over the world, how different countries, how these different countries have connections with each other and, re and relationships with, with each other and have different training and take different policies and procedures and, and ideologies from each other and alter them for the specific circumstances in their country or for the specific circumstances in their state or in their county or in their city. And I think that that, that view, having that lens of, of globalism is one of the most important concepts or aspects in the struggle for a struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice as well, because these are all global issues and because we are in the words of Dr. King, we are all uh, connected directly and indirectly, and whatever affects so, uh, whatever affects my fellow person affects me as well. And uh, I can't be my best version of me until my fellow person is the best version of themselves. And so th all of those things sort of fall together in the same category. And so I think that those are the two specific aspects within that passage that have to be uh, pointed out is the continued connection between uh, what goes on in this country and what goes on in other countries, what goes on in New York City and what goes on in Utah and how they affect and connect with each other and are intertwined with each other and how these issues of humanity continue to be politicized uh, by the government. All right, we're going to end this episode here. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Make sure to look out for tomorrow's episode of Rafa Reading Daily. And remember, we put these out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. Talk to you tomorrow.